This is First Farragut United Methodist Church's podcast. Thanks for joining us as we continue with our sermon series, Revelation Revealed. The Apostle John's vision of the church reminds us we are called to be a great multitude of diverse people, all with our baggage, hang-ups, and habits, yet all connected and pointing to the one who loves, accepts, and forgives us all. And now, here's Martha with our message. Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the, th- on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, worshiping God, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. Then he said to me, These are they who have come out of great ordeal. They have washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple, and the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more, they will thirst no more, the sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We are, or have arrived, I should say, at week three in a sermon series on the book of Revelation. What we call the book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. Full disclosure, there are 22 chapters in the book of Revelation, and in this series, we're not doing all 22 chapters, because if we did, we would be here until Christmas, and I would lose every single one of you between now and Christmas if we tried to do that. So what we're really doing is trying to skim through this in a five-week series to try to to get a, a, a grasp of the different ways that we can interpret Revelation and what it means, more importantly, what it means for our lives here and now. The book of Revelation has fascinated, perplexed, challenged, scared Christians for centuries. Hence the reason we're doing this, to sort of unravel some of that. Now, we began two weeks ago with a brief, although you may not view it as brief, overview of the four ways that we can, four primary ways that we can interpret Revelation, and I believe we have them on a slide. We'll just walk through them briefly because we need to remember this. The first one is called the historicist. The historicist view of interpreting Revelation 
says that the contents or the events in the book of Revelation are or have been unfolding throughout history, hence the reason it's called historicist. It essentially says that each generation that reads Revelation can interpret it through their contextual lens. Then the second one is called the idealist, which is also called the spiritualist, and it essentially says that the contents of Revelation are not about any particular time, past, present, or future, but rather they tell of the timeless divine calling of the church, capital C, and followers of Jesus to remain faithful to Jesus throughout life and all hardships that would be encountered. The third one is called the preterist. Preter actually means past. And the preterist view of interpreting Revelation says that all the contents of Revelation are only about the past, the context in which it was written. And then the fourth view, which is actually the newest view and and frankly the least scholarly supported view is called the futurist. This is the one that Hollywood loves. This is the one that sells books and makes movies. The futurist view says that the contents of Revelation are only all about some distant time in the future. Now here's your pop quiz. It's one answer. Which one is correct? All of them. I heard the word all. When asked which one is correct, the answer is yes. Because all of them have some degree of merit to them. And the reason that we cannot pinpoint with exact accuracy which one is the only one is because of the genre of Revelation. We didn't talk about this last week. We talked about the genre the first week. I kind of left it alone last week, but we're going to visit it again this week. The book of Revelation is classified as apocalyptic literature apocalyptic. We love our words in theology and and Bible and biblical studies. Apocalyptic literature is is an ancient genre that's designed to tell a story but yet conceal the story at the same time. We We might classify it as the genre of fantasy that we have today. It's fictitious and it uses a lot of images and, and, and metaphors to tell stories. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible, there's only three books actually that are classified as apocalyptic. Daniel and Ezekiel in the Old Testament. For those of you who were reading along in our, um, our Bible Gateway reading plan, you read some Ezekiel this week with a wheel within the wheel and some beast with multiple eyes and multiple feet and wings. That's apocalyptic literature. Revelation is the only book, full book, in the New Testament that's classified as apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature is intended to reveal a message to its intended audience while also concealing. It's essentially something written in code. And it uses wild imagery and symbolism. This is why it's important for us to remember that the man named John, the person who wrote uh, Revelation, identifies himself as John. This is why it's important for us to remember that he was writing to a specific people, to seven specific churches. He names them in the beginning, chapter 1, in a specific time period, using specific images that they would have understood. The symbolism throughout Revelation is a bit of an unspoken language. And it's hard for us to grasp. Hence the reason we're fascinated with it. 
I have a person on this planet to whom we share an unspoken language. The only person on this planet who can read my mind, can tell you what I'm thinking, what I'm going to do, can try to keep me from doing what I'm about to do, can tell you my motivations, and that person is my sister. We can have a whole conversation with just two words. My daughter has witnessed it, and she does not understand it. Words, songs, smells can trigger my sister and I, and we instantly know what the other is thinking. A few years ago, I took a picture of something on my phone, and I sent it to her. She did not know where I was when I took this particular picture, but as soon as I sent it to her, she knew exactly where I was, and her response was one word, wow. This is the picture that I sent her. What do you see? Can you guys see it back there? What do you see? That's not a lunchbox. I look at that, and what I see, my sister and I see, is a lifetime of hard work and dedication. We see a moon pie, a ham and cheese sandwich with lettuce made on white bread, and on the top of that flap is probably, by the time we came around, a 1960s green thermos full of whole milk. We see a man who sacrificed greatly for his family. We see a wife who for 40 years made a lunch five days a week and packed it in that lunchbox. We see wisdom and love, the likes of which this world yearns for today. That lunchbox was carried five days a week for 40 years by my grandfather to DuPont in Chattanooga. You see a lunchbox. What my sister and I see when we see that picture is a lifetime of precious memories that flash before us. Symbolism is a powerful tool. A lunchbox tells 96 years of history to my sister and I. Symbolism is a powerful tool that's used throughout Revelation. So let's back up a little bit of where we left off last week. Last week, we jumped from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 5, where in chapter 4 and 5, we see this otherworldly vision of worship heavily using symbolism. What we saw is there was a throne, and around it were concentric circles. There was a throne, then there were more thrones, then there were heavenly beasts, then there were earthly animals, then there were heavenly angels, then there were people, and then there were signs of creation with flashes of lightning and thunder and gemstones, and it's a heavily symbolized picture of worship. Because right in the center of it was a throne, and on it, we were told, is the worthy lamb, which we say is Jesus. Where we left off at the beginning of that scene, there was a scroll And there were seven seals that sealed up that scroll. And we're picking up in chapter 7 today. And those seals began to be opened in chapter 6. We're not going to go through every single one of them. But those seals that began to be opened in chapter 6 that we skipped, they, they sparked the coming of the four horsemen. We've heard that phrase, right? Then the fifth seal was the cries of martyrs. Then the sixth was speaks of earthquakes. The seventh is actually not opened until we get to the eighth chapter of Revelation. We're not going to go into the symbolism of every single seal that's opened. But in summary, 
A lot of scholars believe that what's happening with each of those seals that are being opened is sort of a repetitive nature of trying to show the same picture. Telling the same story from a different perspective about evil and suffering and good, and it's all from a different perspective. But today we arrive in chapter 7, and we come back to that scene of worship of those gathered around the throne. Only last week the focus was on the throne itself, but this week the focus seems to have shifted from the one sitting on the throne to the people gathered around. I want to invite you, if you feel comfortable, to close your eyes. I'm going to read that verse 9 again, the opening verse that Ryan just read for us. I'm going to read it again, and I I want to invite you to close your eyes and, and think about what you see, what you hear, what you feel. This is John who's writing. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. How many are there? A multitude of too many to count. Where have they come from? Every nation, all the tribes, from Africa to Alaska, from China to New York. What sort of people are they? What languages do they speak? There are all people there. Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, people of Islam nations, people of Muslim nations, Hindu nations, people of tribal nations, people of Christian nations, people who speak English, French, Spanish, German, Greek, Russian, all the way from East Tennessee hillbilly to proper British, every other language under the sun gathered around this throne. What are they wearing? They're all wearing a white robe. Why in the world are they wearing white robes? Robes in the ancient world were a a pretty big deal. You could tell a person's status by the robe that he or she wore. The longer the, the train or the trail of the robe, the more important you were. The more colorful or more ornate the robe, the wealthier you were. The more drab or shorter or ripped the robe, the poorer, less significant you were. But all of these gathered around this throne are all the same all in a white robe, no suits and ties, no holy jeans, no Dolce Gabbana, no Oscar or Golden Globe best dressed gowns. There are no unshowered and unkempt people. There's no Nike Airs. There's no Adidas. There's no upper class dressed or lower class dressed. They're all wearing a white robe. What this scene shows us is a vision of the church capital C church, the universal church. Imagine the differences that those people bring. Imagine the differences gathered around that throne. Skin color, yes. Language, yes. But what about lifestyles? What about music preferences, educational differences, economic differences, sexuality, race, social class? What about political differences, religious differences, doctrinal differences, 
Friends, we have people in this scene from the Ukraine and Russia standing together. We have Democrats and Republicans, believe it or not, standing together. It's possible. And it's in this scene. When standing before the throne of Jesus, all those differences don't mean anything. What we see here is a massively diverse crowd. But despite their diversity, standing before the throne of Jesus, they're all equal. Now, our first instinct is to look at this, to view this with some hopeful eye of some far-off point in the future, and that's not incorrect. Followers of Jesus do hold hope, cling to the hope that this will someday be what we see, but it's not just a view for the way things will be. It's a glimpse of the way things are to be. It's something that Jesus called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God quite a bit in all of his, in all of his teachings. He says in several places, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is here. Or I have come to bring the kingdom of heaven. It's throughout his teachings. We'll talk more about it next week. But here's why we can draw the conclusion that this isn't just about some future time period. Here's your lesson in ancient languages for the day. Ancient languages, I've said this before, and I'll say it until I die, can be translated in a multiple of ways. Because of parsing and participles and tenses and the way ancient languages worked, when we try to translate them into modern 21st century languages, we simply cannot get the full meaning. This particular version that I preach from, called the New Revised Standard Version, it's my favorite one to preach from, but it has some mistranslations in it, and this is one of them. Many scholars will tell you that this particular verse, when John is asked by the person in the vision, where have these, these people come from? He says, well, I don't know, you're the one who knows. The voice says to him, these are they who have come out of a great ordeal, come out of, that's past tense. But many scholars will tell you that's actually a mistranslation and it's actually present tense and should be translated this way. These are those coming out of a great tribulation. Present tense. Coming out of implies we're still in it implies we're still coming out of it, still going through it. What this vision of the church offers us is an example of what is to be now and in the future. It's tempting for us to interpret this as some far-off point, but those who read this some 2,000 years ago would have interpreted this less about the far-off future and more about the possibilities of their present Perhaps it's becoming clearer to you why there is more than one way to interpret the book of Revelation. But the lesson for us in that, this vision, is this. The church, capital C, and local churches for that matter, are to be a place of diversity. A place and, and a people, a community of faith, who reach out to those who feel shunned by the church. The church is to be a place for those who have been told they don't belong, 
or have been told they're the wrong kind of person. There is no such thing as the wrong kind of person when it comes to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for all. This scene shows us there's no hierarchy in the church. There's no power struggle. There's no better thans, less thans, haves or have nots. There's no condemning others for their views, history, thoughts, lifestyles. They're all clothed in white. And that white is a symbol of the covering of the love of God. The love of God that forgives, restores, renews, and transforms all of us. I have a clergy colleague who this past week, I believe, captured this vision of the church in in about as beautiful a way as I have seen in recent days. This particular uh, clergy colleague posted this, I'm going to read some of it to you in just a minute, posted this to social media, but this clergy person, this person has had significant health issues for years actually, forced into an early retirement. Retirement was on the horizon, but was forced nonetheless. Serious heart issues culminated in in a fall back in October, further complicated by these heart issues. And this person actually did not go home, maybe once or twice, from October until just before Easter. That's, That's the extent of the physical challenges this person faced. And then finally, able to go to worship on Easter Sunday. Some folks took this person to worship. And this is what the person wrote this week. As I entered the church for the first time since October, the tears were overwhelming. The church, along with many other friends of different faiths and backgrounds, fed me, transported me, visited me, prayed for me, called, sent cards, and a million other things to get me through the most difficult time. Isn't that what it's all about? The person wrote, when someone has helped me, I have not asked their position on church doctrine or if they hold the same theological perspectives as me. I don't care how they worship. I don't even care if they worship at all. I just let myself experience the love that they extended to me and hopefully I sent some love out to others. In the middle of some disagreements in the United Methodist Church and I would add in the world in general, The person wrote, I can't help but feel that if people could experience how I have been nurtured and cared for, it would go a long way toward creating an environment where theology, ideology, and dogma are not as important as love. I want everyone to experience God's love in the way that I have experienced it the last several months. Imagine what the church, capital C, and our church would look like if we practiced that kind of love day in and day out. Truly practiced it. I leave you with this vision and a challenge for us. Can you imagine what this place would look like? what our hearts would feel like if we loved like that. Not just each other, but our neighbors, 
our strangers, our classmates. That's what the church, the whole church, is called to do. Not just the pastor, not just the staff, not just on special occasions when we serve mobile pantry, CCD, very important, but that's not, not just those days, not just on Sundays, but wherever we go, day in and day out. That is how we are called to love. That is what this whole Jesus thing is all about. This vision of the church is not just some far-off example. It is something that we are to be today. I invite you to see how it is as you go throughout your daily life. How are you loving in the way that this clergy colleague of mine described? That's what it means to be the church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week as we continue with our sermon series, Revelation Revealed. The resurrection of Jesus was only the beginning of making things anew. We are all still works in progress, and God is still in the process of bringing about a new way of life. See you then.